Welcome to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours, episode 160 for April 27th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassan-Plow. And I'm Pam Bedore. And we have reached the end of the Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. This was published in 2020, and it's all about climate change and the future of what we can do today for the future and the thinking about the future. And the next book is my choice. Pam, this book was your choice. <laughs> yes, this it book, was. This book, tell us all about it. Well... I had read it immediately before we just we started talking about it. And as I was reading it, I felt like it was a very important book, but also a very difficult book. Very, very challenging. It's 106 chapters. It has many, many different narrative perspectives, including some that are purely philosophical, that don't even have any characters. It's about politics. It's about economics. It's about bureaucrats. I mean, it's a, it's a tough story to tell. And this is one of those novels that takes up that call that Amitav Ghosh has recently made, saying that we need cli-fi that isn't sci-fi, and we need to, to have more mainstream narratives around the climate crisis. So as I was reading it, I found it to be very challenging, but amazing. And this book really, I thought was excellent. And I was super excited to share it with you guys, even though I knew that it, you might or might not like it, you know, and it turned out you really didn't like it. So I'm very, very fascinated. I have really loved slash hated these past four and now five weeks on this book because it is, you know, when you think something's kind of amazing and then your friends are like, that's terrible. And you want to hear that too. And so I was like, okay, am I willing to consider maybe this is a terrible, awful book, poorly written, poorly considered, poorly thought out. And so this week, I really took a lot of time to think about this. Like, would I teach this book? Do I think it's important? Am I going to stick with my initial reading that this is actually an incredibly important book that I would put on par with like Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man, which had a very complicated reception when it was written in the 30s, or Grapes of Wrath, which has a similar narrative structure. Do I think it's that important? And you know what, guys? You guys didn't like it. I loved it. I am going with it. I would like to argue for this book this week, and that is where I have ended up. Tell me where you guys are at now that you have completed this large tome. Isn't that the point of a book club, Pam? Of course. Isn't that the point? You find a book you think is important, you bring it to us, and we look at it from our perspective. And our perspective, of course, is different from your perspective. I'm looking for something different from my reading i love escapist not thinking silly writing this is so much work on the reader's part <laughs> that yes. i'm not willing to put in right now now if you had brought this to me in july and it wasn't during school maybe my perspective would have been different and i would have been willing to put more work into it but mm -hmm. uh april is a challenging time in the school year <laughs> and to to delve into this I, I'm I'm at a very shallow level of my thinking about this book. I don't like the narrative here. I don't care about these characters. I missed a huge 
piece that we'll talk about later. And and I I missed it. I didn't know that something was happening that was happening. And I blame the narrative for this. I think that I don't like flexing the narrative structure. I think that the narrative structure, introduction of protagonist, problem, climax, ending, simple, straightforward storytelling works the best for me. I understand wanting to break that structure and play with it, but I think that the the hero's journey, that Joseph Campbell list of all of those heroes and how the story works, works for me. And I really appreciate that perspective a lot. And as you know, Steve, I mean, I actually study genre fiction. It's totally, genre fiction is my favorite as well. But at the same time, I would argue the climate crisis does not have the kind of narrative structure that you and I both so enjoy and that all of us out there who love escapist fiction enjoy. So to write a climate crisis novel with, you know, in genre, which is what we do with apocalypse. Hello, still my favorite genre. I'd rather read an apocalypse than the ministry for the future. I just think this is important. And I think that it does with the narrative. I don't think it's just trying. I don't think Kim Stanley Robinson's like, I want to do narrative play. I think he's trying to find a narrative that is accurate and true to the problem that he's addressing. Hmm. Hmm. I wish we had him on to ask him that question, whether the idea of the demonstration of the crisis was first or the I'm going to write a book was first. That's an interesting question that I don't. Well, and this is like his 21st novel, and most of his novels are about the climate crisis. He has a PhD in English. His PhD dissertation advisor was Frederick Jameson, one of the most famous cultural critics on the planet. And Jameson, of course, is the guy who very famously said, it's easier to imagine the end of history than the end of capitalism. (laughs) And so you can feel that sort of. He quoted that. that. That's in this book. You can feel that literary and aesthetic influence all the way through this book. Mm-hmm. Chip, what, what's your feeling about this book and week five? Well, it's, it's very similar to what it was at the, you know, as I started getting an idea of what he was proposing. And this is a proposal for communism. And I think that, that it's a naive um, play because we have seen what communism does, how dehumanizing it is to humans. So we have the climate crisis here, as he's proposing, but I think the solution is totally not palatable. And I think that you know all you have to do is just look at communism's um, history and how what it did to the humans who lived under those uh, uh, regimes, and then recognizing this is not an acceptable solution. This is a very good book. This is a very good book to to read during this time. This was Earth Day um, this last week. And interestingly enough, I got a call from my daughter, who is uh, taking a climate crisis or a climate uh, uh, course at the University of Kentucky, and she was asking me a, a number of the questions. So it, it was very interesting that we would uh, that we this was a, the perfect book for this type of uh, for this time of year. So I'm really interesting that I'm interested, Chip, that you think of this as purely about communism because I. Th- that this is actually like a some sort of hybrid proposal. I mean, it's the central banks that end up working with the Ministry for the Future to think about a sort of hybrid 
capitalist socialist. I'm not, I'm not sure I see. The central banks are central planning. So if you wanted to know what socialism looks in the United States, just look at the central bank. The Federal Reserve Bank is central planning. Right, but that's socialism, not communism, right, Chip? I think they're quite- The, the, the solutions are the same. The solution, where, where and communism all, are the same? It will go the same way. The solution, oh. I mean, the, how they will play will be similar. If you want to uh, read further on it, you can read Ludwig von Mises' Socialism. He actually posts this out back in the, I don't know, 50s or whatever, whatever he wrote that. I'm sure that we need to have these conversations about all of these structures. I'm sure that knowledge is going to bring us closer to a solution. And of course, here at the end of this story, we don't get a solution as such. And I didn't expect one because we're not going to resolve this. I, and I, I just I just want a simpler, more escapist story. Here, here's, here's my admission. I've read this book 100%. I've definitely read it. I didn't pay a lot of attention to a lot of parts of it. And I... When I was done with our section for the week, I went on to read a different book that I made myself feel better by reading silly Terry Pratchett Discworld novels because it, this is too much for me right now. I would like to just mention, this is an incredibly ambitious work. And so I, I don't want for any listener to not recognize it how challenging it is to address such a, a challenging issue. My, I, I, I'm not happy with the solutions on it, but what I will say is that there was an attempt made. I hope this sparks another writer to have um, uh, better solutions, more palatable solutions, things of that nature. You know, one chapter that I found really fascinating in these last 20 that we read for this week was chapter 94, where the bureaucrats, as they're meeting, recognize that the Paris Agreement of 2016 actually made a huge difference. And I just thought that was really fascinating because I think a lot of people feel that the Paris Agreement is far too weak, is, is, is not only far too weak, but also is not being adhered to. And so we had some interesting news this very week on the Paris Agreement. Even as we were reading this book, it was sort of intersecting with reality. Again, because this is Earth Week, we celebrated Earth Day this week. Yes, there's been lots of talk about what we are going to do and what we can do, what we should do. The President of the United States announced this week his effort to reduce the greenhouse gas output from 2005 by 50%, and he pledged to make that happen by 2030. Now, the, the problem with this is that he didn't offer a lot of methods. He did not say how he was going to get this done, but putting it out there. I think the Paris Agreement is flawed because there's so many people who don't do what they have agreed that they're going to do. And... and putting forward that we are going to do this is, is step one. It's just, what are we going to do is step and, two. Right. And the big difference is nine years, like is putting a nine year window on this instead of the typical 30 or 40 year window. Oh yeah. We'll do X by 2050. 
mm-hmm. which is I think a lot of us were expecting from this week. So it was it was a bit of a difference from the typical rhetoric. There's an incentive to cheat, and who's going to be the enforcer? That's really where it comes down to. Yeah, you know, one of the things I found very persuasive in Robinson's novel, and this is not an idea that he just himself had, is that like, you know, sure, there are incentives to cheat, but at the same time, like, so what? If you beat others in the economic markets, but you still don't stop the climate crisis, who's going to pay you for your brilliance? There's nothing left. Like, you know, Betting on the planet is probably a better bet than betting on the economy. I, I, I'm persuaded by that. It's interesting. And I do like how he brought that up, that you can short the, <laughs> yes. the whole idea of this, but and then you win. Congratulations. Then what? Well, we already have some of that. I mean, Apple, Amazon, who else? Uh, they, they're creating, uh, Google, they're creating um, data centers that uh, they're hoping for zero uh, net carbons. In fact, I received an email on Earth Day basically asking our firm, you know, what type of uh, carbon footprint are we putting? Can we can we calculate that? I would assume that, that for many um, companies, especially you know, large companies, it's going to be a source of pride to show that they have a, a, a zero um, carbon footprint or something of that nature. So, it, you know, that's one of the areas that that, um, that we could do is basically create a uh, little pressure on companies or at least support companies that have zero footprint. And can I ask, do you think that novels like this, cli-fi novels and cli-fi films, do you think they are part of the cultural zeitgeist that does exactly what you just said, Chip, that makes companies feel like, whoa, we've got to show that we're on the right side of this thing? I'm not sure who's going to pick up this book. I mean, I I, I picked it up because you request you, you suggested it, and certainly I respect. <laughs> I your required support. it. Just say it. Required reading for the book club. I'm sorry. <laughs> but but the the grand part though is that if you would say read anything, I would, I would I would take it to heart because I know how wonderful of a reader you are and what your expertise is and how much I respect your your your. Uh, you know, what, what you would say that we, we read. So I, I don't think that that is, um, I, I, but for the general public, we're, we're, not, we're talking beyond the, um, the, the everyday reader. I'm not sure who's going to pick this up. I don't think the everyday Joe is going to pick it up. I actually, because this was one of Barack Obama's favorite books of 2020, I do think it's had a ton of buzz. I mean, it's been reviewed by you know, every major publication has tons and tons of reads and reviews. It's a book that people are talking about. It's been recommended to me by at least six or eight people. So I didn't just have one random friend who said, you got to read this and tell me. I mean, I've had many, many people recommend it. And um, it, it's getting a lot of reads. From, from I would say, readers. Not everybody's a reader. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This is a tough one. <laughs> and Yeah. The question of whether, like, it's going to be, I'm suspecting it's going to get taught a fair amount, but this is a tough book to teach because I'm trying to picture, like, would I teach this in my 14-week utopian dystopia class? Whew, we have to give it four to six weeks, which would crowd out three or four other novels, right? Mm-hmm. Almost feel like the only way to teach it is as a single novel course, which I do every once in a while, 
But those are kind of, you know, boutique courses for honors students or whatever, because I think, I think you would have to spend the whole semester on this. I don't think you could really teach it in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think that we have spent a month on it and we are still on the very shallow end of actually getting to the meat of this writing. And and I think it would be challenging to teach. I mean, you're not going to teach it from a narrative perspective, I don't think, because I, I really didn't like the narrative. That's why I think that. You, you could break it up, though, because almost every, I don't know, chapter or so, is an exploration of an idea. Mm-hmm. And there's where it would lend itself to being a semester course. Right. And you, know, you, you could you know, defend it or not defend it or whatever, at least explore the idea, because that's exactly where I think this book is going. Robinson has an idea, he's going to explore it for this period of time, and he loosely puts a story in between that. And he actually has many, many ideas. I mean, he explores a number of different approaches and you could see how much fun it would be to have students go off and do the research on these various ideas. What can you do with the ice shelf? What can you do with the carbon coin? You know, what like what are the terrifying eco-terrorist implications to the next few years? What about this notion of like global, of the world citizenship? for climate migrants, you know? I mean, there is a lot to to be explored and you could do an incredible amount of information literacy teaching with a book like this. But again, it's a, it would take time. The fact that it feels like we've read it kind of quickly, although not quickly enough for you guys, in five weeks, you know, it's yeah. just so much, so much detail and you know, books that sort of sit between fiction and nonfiction. Obviously, this is a novel, but mm-hmm. I think you can say, like Grapes of Wrath, it sits between fiction and nonfiction, between a story and an analysis of a situation. They're tough. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as you get into the story, you get interrupted by some weird riddle or some story. Okay. You're never you say weird that. riddle, but you love these riddles, I didn't love you? Riddles. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the riddles at the beginning. I, I enjoyed the break from the tragedy. I, I, I talked about uh, Hamlet, Shakespeare's great tragedy. He absolutely broke the moment and added comedy in the middle to show you that didactic difference so that you could see the tragedy more clearly when you saw the opposite. And I enjoyed that at the beginning of this. I wanted it to end about halfway through and get to the narrative. That was That's the way I expected it to go based on the readings that I've done in other stories like this. I completely buy that. And Steve, you've mentioned a couple times now that you didn't care about the characters. And that makes me so sad because I care very deeply about these characters. So that's just a difference in reading. You know, again, this book has been super well reviewed. 86% of readers like it on Goodreads, you know, so just for like your general everyday readers, I'm really interested. We're outliers. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. We're wrong. I get it. No, I get it. No, no, no. But but Chip, I actually think you guys are super, super important outliers because I think only, come on, look at this sucker. It's 586 pages in hardcover. It's whatever, how many hours on the audiobook? 
I think like whatever, 86% of people who thought I want to read a 600 page climate change book liked it. That's not the same as 86% of people in the general population at right. all, right? This is self-selecting. And, and I should, should be very clear on this. My dislike for the solutions in sort of this book is not to say that I didn't enjoy going through it because one, it challenges me. These, these are mm-hmm. these are big issues, and you have to know what what is going on out there, and you, you need to be able to to think like other people think. That's part of the, the 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 beauty of reading is you can live a thousand lives without you know just sitting down and, and, and exploring somebody else's mind. That's the part that. I think is important, and, and why? If you, if you said, "Hey, so you should read this," this is this is what I would say. Why? Why read this? Because it may challenge how you view solutions, and it might make you go do a little research on some of these things. Well, it may also spark a, a, a person to find other types of solutions, maybe mm-hmm. solutions Absolutely. that um, would you know uh, support you know someone else's uh, ideology. Yeah, one of the things about reading this is how much work the reader has to put in. I really think that he's got some great metaphors for the climate crisis, for this sense of what we can do, what we should do, and he does not bonk you over the head with, hey, everybody, this is like being in a coma. Hey, everybody, this is like being in prison. Hey, everybody, this is like being in a a marriage that isn't working out so great. He just puts out there these loose ideas. The first one for this section was in chapter 91, where we find out that Frank has brain cancer that was undiscovered for a long time. He's willing to go through any treatment available, and he says, quote, why not? Something might work. I think that's a great metaphor for the climate crisis. We've been going through this for a long time, and why not try something? Why not? Yeah, and Frank's only 30 years old at, you know, at the end of this novel. And so, you know, this, this notion that this American aid worker who was in that absolutely horrifying heat wave in India. And you guys, I think that first chapter is going to be highly anthologized. I think that first chapter is going to get taught a lot. I I agree with that. The whole, it's hard to find a good space for it, but that first chapter is going to get taught all the time. Absolutely. And, And remember when we read that first chapter, I was not sure if Frank was going to be our protagonist or not. And he didn't become the protagonist. Mary's the protagonist, but he has a journey that he goes through as well. He was antagonistic for a few chapters there. Right. He was Mary's kidnapper, but it's interesting because now that we look back, like, did he already have the beginnings of that tumor during that heat wave when he was the only one who survived? Probably, right? But he just got the water. It wasn't just about his superior health. It was that he drank that whole bottle of water and didn't share with another person, which is why he lived another six years to die of brain cancer six years later. Another metaphor, mm-hmm. the the selfishness that survived versus those who perished. Uh-huh. Yeah. The idea of he was in jail 
for crimes and then being medically trapped in his body later. That's another metaphor that, once again, I would appreciate the author bonking me over the head with, and instead, he's he's just laying it out there, and then we, the reader, have to do the work. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's perfect. And it's such a metaphor for our relationship to the planet, too, right? This notion that, you know, there have been a lot of TV shows, movies. I just watched Stowaway. I watched the TV series Away. There's a whole bunch of things that are about trip to Mars. But the reality is we got one planet. We're trapped here. And, you know, as the planet becomes more and more diseased, we don't have anywhere to go. And so that notion of, of being doubly trapped, you know, we can imagine going somewhere in the very distant future, but that doesn't help you and me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the term that I heard this week is gravity jail. We Ooh, are trapped yeah, like by it. gravity. We mm -hmm. do not have the power to leave this planet without a lot of effort. And only a very few people at this point can be imagined to leave the planet. Mm-hmm. Chapter 94, we get good news. The utopia has succeeded and climate change is over. Thank goodness. And then... Whoa, 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 whoa. Where was that chapter? <laughs> uh, that's the way I read it. It was very, very modest improvements. In the it was the way I read it. The way I read it, it was a utopia and everything was just flowers and trees and it was wonderful. And then the author immediately eviscerates any positivity by showing us all of the other issues plaguing our world today. And, and I, boy, I, I just, I was not... I was not there with you on this one, Pam. I just, I, I want more joy and less uh, reality. I don't like reality. <laughs> but you love science fiction. Uh-huh. The fiction part, <laughs> the fiction part and the science part. And the, I... and, the, and the glance at the future that is more positive than negative. That's what I like about science fiction. But science fiction almost always does a critique of the current world as well. And I understand. <laughs> but not usually, but not usually quite this explicitly. I'll give you that. Yeah. And then they, they come to this relationship that Frank has with an ex, and there's a young girl involved, and I absolutely did not know these characters at the end of Frank's life, there's this woman and this young girl who come to visit and the Mary is is talking to these people, and I'm like, who are these people? I completely missed this. <laughs> I'm sorry, but they they've been in it for like five or six chapters, and so this is the right after um when Frank was an aid worker after he went through all of his PTSD treatment, he was working in a refugee camp, and so we had four or five chapters from the perspective of this teen girl who was in the camp for over a thousand days, and we've checked in with her. And her mom, she's a little sister, and her mom is dating this American aid worker. And he goes by a different name, but we know it's Frank because he does the um, the eye tracking exercises when he gets really stressed that he learned through his PTSD therapy. And so we've seen them a few times. I know it's funny, though. I, I love that you shared that you had lost track of that character just because that's just such a good reminder of how many different perspectives we get here 
And so, and that's the perspective we got in this section, Steve, where the girl is like, oh my gosh, like we're getting world citizenship. What does that even mean? Where do mm-hmm. we go with that? And then it's like, like world citizens who are people whose who's, uh, native land no longer exists due to rising sea levels you know she's she's the one who narrates that so we have seen her a bunch of times but it's it's subtle <laughs> it, it is subtle enough that i did not understand that it is subtle enough and, and the, again the list of ideas one chapter after another yeah it's in there and i missed it it probably would have been more sensible for kim stanley robinson to just call that guy frank may and not give him some other name and then, you know because you're Again, this comes back to the point of how much he's asking of the reader. It's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot of ideas in this book. And a lot of characters. And some of the characters don't have names at all. Some of them are just voices that I still don't know who it was who was speaking in some of the situations. I I did not get that. Uh, I didn't... And you know me. I really like the idea of romance in a story i really like the idea of two people who find each other and and then we get to the ending of this book where two people find each other and i don't care about either one of them <laughs> hey they had they had a they had a uh, whiskey uh-huh. as they floated I, over the mountains uh-huh and they in the airship I want to no. travel in an airship. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> Fine. This is such a throwback to 19th century because 19th century dime novels, people are traveling in airships all the time. And in 19th century sci-fi as well. Mm-hmm. And even some fantasy novels. I'm thinking about like Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. You've got the airship. So the notion of having these large, slow-moving, non-carbon-generating machines traveling slowly through the sky fine i'll i'll give you airships it was kind of fun. <laughs> so, well there's nothing right. to prevent airships from flying that right now i mean yeah there's nothing yeah. preventing it Absolutely. a lot of these things a lot of these things could just happen if, if somebody had the idea that that's what they wanted to do i said yeah, yeah it's a good year <laughs> nothing okay that's fine so Okay, so Steve, you couldn't care less about Mary Murphy. You've made it very clear. Chip, did you have any interest in Mary? No. I love Mary. So you guys, um, <laughs> middle-aged bureaucrat like me is like, I love this woman. She's so interesting. What a what a fascinating life. I, well, I still, I, I, I'll argue that the story is uh, about ideas and the people are just so secondary to, to it. I, I think they were just put in there so that we have some people. And I guess you grabbed onto them, but I was... I still, I, I was caught in the big ideas that he was talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess I liked both. I liked both the the challenging bits. And for me, it's so funny because I wasn't as disturbed by the end of capitalism, but I was like really disturbed by the eco-terrorism, right? I mean, those parts were very, very tough to read and think about. Yeah. And um because potentially we are staring down the possibility that violence might be somebody's choice as the answer to change. Right. Well, I was disturbed that, that he said China was going to lead us through this. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, oh that, that. So why would why would that disturb you, Jim? I mean, I feel 
Because I, I don't think the people of Hong Kong are enjoying the, the Chinese taking over their city. That was interesting, that chapter about Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. 2047. Yeah. So anyway, so I really liked Mary. I really felt for her. I thought that she was often chairing meetings where people were going off in all kinds of different directions and it was hard for her to keep things organized. (laughs) Not like your day at all. I've experienced that many times. Um, (laughs) And she also really, she tried to really hear people and work with people. And so I, I really liked her. I thought she was great. And I cried in chapter 96. So you guys were like, these people don't even exist at all. And I'm weeping as I read. So let me take you through what I was thinking. Told you we were heartless, Steve. I know we are. You guys can make fun of me for my sentimentality. No, no, no. You know that I cry at novels all the time. I just, I never got to that point with this one. Tell us why you got there. So, okay. So I think it's one of the things that I found fascinating all the way through was this idea that Frank kidnapped Mary early on. She was terrified. She has this young American guy in her house with a gun who is like telling her, like, I'm a climate terrorist, basically, and I'm going to assassinate people. You're not on the list, but some people are. And, you know, whatever. Like, it's terrifying. She's terrified of this guy. But then he makes these arguments that she's like, oh, my gosh, we both want the same thing. Right. Like, we both want people to pay attention to the crisis and to make it the key. Like, we both believe that if we don't make this the most crucial issue in the earth today that we're basically killing the future of the human race. We are not paying it forward to future generations. And so it's a very complicated thing for her. And she ends up, she calls the police, tells them that she was kidnapped, but she also doesn't especially aid in the attempt. And then she kind of becomes friends with this guy. And she doesn't know how to feel about that the whole entire time, right? So by this point now, Frank's 30, Mary's 55 or whatever. She doesn't know how to feel about Frank, but she keeps, she's like compelled to go visit this guy who's has horrible PTSD and now a brain tumor for crying out loud. And he's continued to work in refugee centers throughout this entire book, even while he's in this sort of semi jail. So when Frank dies, the last time Mary sees him, he's really delirious and he doesn't, he's not that grateful for her visits, right? (laughs) Like he kind of, she reminds him of the fact that he kidnapped her, but they have had some close moments over the years too. It's funny, Steve, that you saw it as a potential romance that never even crossed my mind, partly because of the 25 year age difference, but also just because of the completely different worldviews, but either way. So the last thing that she ever says to him, he's delirious and he just keeps repeating it's only fate it's only fate and you imagine he means like his very early death by brain tumor and she says my friend there is no such thing as fate that's the last thing she said to him and when she walks in the next day it's one of those scenes that you always see in movies where the bed is empty and the nurse is getting it ready for the next patient right Mm -hmm. and the nurse says to mary sometimes they slip away when no one's here some of them need privacy at the end Mm-hmm. It means he died alone, right? Which is a very, very sad thought for me. But in fact, Frank lived alone. Like after that case where he was the only person to survive that horrifying heat wave, he's alone for life at that point. 
And then Mary starts to rethink their very complicated relationship. And she's walking around the streets. She's looking at the architecture and thinking about how long buildings live compared to people. And she says, quote, well, now she would never wake up one night to find herself being murdered by him. She shook off that thought, shocked by it. She's been friends with this guy for like six years now. And she realizes, you know what? There's a part of her that still sees him as the guy who kidnapped her. Mm -hmm. And then she has this, I think, incredibly powerful perspective on PTSD. And I know that we've talked about this before. I work with a lot of students who are veterans. And so I've, I personally haven't experienced PTSD, but I've talked very deeply with a lot of people who have. So this is a topic that I feel like is quite close to me, but I think what Mary says there is really important. She's like, all of us have experiences with either having had PTSD ourselves or working with people who have the struggle. And she remembers her husband dying young. Now we've, we've heard about Martin a couple of times in the past, but this is the deepest dive into Martin who died at a similar age of about 30 and he fought his death really hard compared to Frank, who seemed to just say, it's fate. And that difference, because Martin would have died 25 years earlier when he and Mary were both about 30. And 25 years later, that someone who has, who's like an aid worker and who's really committed to service to others would just give it up, would just let it go. That's when I really started crying. And then she says, maybe that was what PTSD was, the inability to do the work of forgetting or of not recalling. And it's like, yes, a brain tumor killed him, but also the heat wave killed him. Also his inability to think past the existential dread of climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just, I just thought that was incredibly sad. And then as well, I thought it was incredibly hopeful that Mary walked away and she goes back to her, her life. And she has this, I thought, very touching moment where she thinks about Frank being gone. It was so hard to imagine that a mind could be gone. All those thoughts that you never tell anyone, all those dreams, all that entire pocket universe, gone. I noted that one. That one, even though I didn't actually care about Frank, this writing about loss, this writing about death, this writing about hospice and, and nursing and all of the things, they did affect me. But that idea of your mind is a pocket universe. And when it's gone, it's just gone. That, that phrase certainly touched me. And and people who we've had really deep conversations with, maybe sometimes even more the people we didn't agree with than the ones we did, when they die and we know they're never going to surprise us a single other time. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a familiar feeling, I think. Right. Well, especially during COVID times. I mean, that's yeah. how those people die. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then just to nail the coffin in my tearful reading, <laughs> just one more thing. Mary then realizes, oh, that's why people believe in souls because they want to believe that that pocket universe can exist. But unfortunately I don't. <laughs> right. Oh, Mary, come on, man. <laughs> You're killing me here. But yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. The the memories. I, I think the the memories are the thing that live on and the the wonderful things that you do in your life and the ways that you touch others, that's what lives on. I, I don't know, but I hope that the things that I've chosen to do will be the stories. We're all stories in the end. That's that's the Doctor Who quote. Just make it a good one. <laughs> I like that, Steve. Yeah. Well, here, here we go. And, and to make it even more you know, fatal on that is we're all forgotten stories. Mm-hmm. Because go back two or three generations, and I'm sure you can't remember unless quickly. there's something that's unique. That quickly forgotten, that may fly. That, uh, another, another loose metaphor yes. that the author gives us is we are mayflies. We live on this planet for such a short amount of time, and we are so inconsequential to the larger story. And it's like, ugh. Dude, thank you for all the positivity <laughs> for April. <laughs> when is the next eclipse coming, Steve? So we can we can ponder that again. <laughs> oh, the grandeur of the eclipse that was that was spectacular. The grandeur of the Grand Canyon, going and seeing the awe-inspiring big things in the universe, and seeing your tiny little mayfly place in all of it. Yeah, that's part of it. And, you know, one of the things that Kim Stanley Robinson has said in an interview about this book is, but it has to be remembered that there is no planet B and Earth is our extended body and thus a major character in all our novels, whether the novelists realize it or not. And I really like that. And I think when you talk about that, the importance of awe, Steve, the importance of thinking about how big the Earth is, how long it has been here and will be here the scope of it and the scope of some features. You just mentioned a couple, but but even the awe at looking at a wolverine, looking at this this chamois when when Mary and Frank travel, and then she meets this this guy, Art, who's like someone who lives in the same co-op as Frank, the airship captain. Just these these moments of looking at something very small and beautiful, like a cardinal in the backyard, or looking at something very big and awe-inspiring like the Grand Canyon, but finding the awe in the earth. And thinking of the earth as a character, I think, is wonderful. Agreed. Ah, fine. (laughs) Fine. Professor, you have explained everything to us again, and you're right. Is there an ending to this book, Pam? Do you like endings? Have we talked about this in 161 episodes of this show? No, I don't usually like endings. Okay, so, of course, there's there's no real ending to this book. But we end at a Zurich street festival, and it's Mardi Gras. It's Fat Tuesday, and there's this big street festival and Mary and Art go out and there's music at every corner and you have to sit and listen to the music and a lot of amateurs. It sounded to me like a ton of fun and a lot of cacophony, but but I thought this little detail that Art hadn't dressed warmly enough 
I'm always that person who like overestimates my Canadian hardiness. And I'm always that person who's out later than expected, not wearing the right jacket. And I really, I really felt for art. So anyway, the end of this novel is a work of art and it's a street statue in Zurich of Ganymede and an eagle. And I don't know much about this statue at all. I think that's, that's a little project I would give students like, go find out more about this and read it. But the ending, as they're looking at this street statue, it has to mean something, Mary said. Does it? Art asked. I think it does. And I love that. This is, we're not quite at the end yet. But I love that idea of, like, does art have to mean something? I think the answer to that is yes. Do we have to agree to what it means? Absolutely not. Like, that's the beauty of art. It's going to mean different things to different people. And, and it's another metaphor because right? <laughs> because he writes, it has to mean something. And that can refer to anything that you want to apply it to, metaphor man. And when a book ends ekphrastically, this is called ekphrasis in the literature, as you'll know, Steve, from your English major. Um, ekphrasis is where you actually have a description of a work of art in a different work of art. So when a, when a novel or a poem stops and describes a statue or a piece of music to you. So this ekphrastic ending, it always asks you to think about the text itself. Are we all gonna agree what this novel means? No, does it mean something? Yeah, it probably does. Will it mean different things to different people? Absolutely. And here's the actual final lines. She clutched his arm hard. We will keep going, she said to him in her head, to everyone she knew or had ever known, all those people so tangled inside her, living or dead. We will keep going, she reassured them all, but mostly herself, if she could. We will keep going, we will keep going, because there is no such thing as fate, because we never really come to the end. The end. The end. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say it because you usually say it. Sorry. <laughs> the fact that he ended the book with the words, the end, but it was in the sentence because we never really come to the end. That, okay, fine. That's good writing. And Chip, when you said earlier that you didn't love this novel, but that you hope it will prompt people to write better novels with better solutions. I mean, I think he's agreeing with you here. He's not saying that his isn't a great novel. I, I have no idea how he feels about that. But, but this idea that this is an ongoing conversation. This is just one piece of it. Mm -hmm. The ending is exactly agreeing with your statement that this could prompt further art in all various forms and just further conversations because we need to be having them. And the fact that he has a character named Art talking about mm -hmm. art at the end and so, yes. all right, fine <laughs> fine this this person's name is may gee i wonder wonder what she does oh, she talks about different novels in a different month <laughs> all right professor you're right this means something this is important i get it that's a do you get that quote pam i don't no, no. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where he's making the mashed potatoes into the Devil's Tower. <laughs> I don't know. Good. I'm so sorry. All right. So here's my point, Pam. My point is we're going to get back into some science fiction here. Let's, let's go forth into my fourth 
book of our podcast adventure. The month of May, we are going to read The Calculating Stars, a lady astronaut novel. This was published in 2018 by Mary Robinette Kowal. This is an alternate history story that takes place in the 1950s where there is a climate crisis that happens suddenly in the 1950s and we have to find a solution very quickly in the 1950s. I, I love this book. This was my favorite book of 2018 and I look forward to reading uh, a much more adventurous and much more escapist sort of story that kind of leads us down the same paths of what are we doing and how can we change what we're doing for the future and we're looking at this this is part one of three right so this is the first book of a series correct correct and we'll get into that next week and and i'll I'll tell you a little bit of background about mary robinette kowal Uh, i hope that we can get her on the show and have a discussion about her career because her career is pretty amazing too we'll get into that a, a lot next week as a matter of fact well i'm really looking forward to this book sounds fascinating and we're going to read chapters one through nine That's right. Next week's assignment is part one, which is chapters one through nine of The Calculating Stars. I I hope everybody's going to enjoy it. I hope that it's got something for everybody, kind of like the Ministry for the Future. Except different. Very different. Except more things and fewer ideas and more narrative. Pam, thank you for bringing us this book. I, I'm glad that we had this long conversation about this, and it's not a conversation that's over. We can certainly keep going and thinking about how we're going to manage the future while we're reading more fun science fiction. <laughs> You're welcome, and I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> it, it's not time travel. The Calculating Stars is alternate history, not time travel. Not the same, sort so of. So noted. Sort of. Sort of. Sort of not the same. Sort of similar. We'll talk about that next week. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week. What do you think, Pam? Is the I'm future in. okay? I'm in. <laughs> We would love to hear from you. What do you think? How are you? How's everything going? We would, we would love to hear your voice. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Send us an email, sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube and Amazon, all over the place. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hasselblad. And I'm Pat Bedore. We'll see you in the future. In the cacophony that Chip lives in.